Welcome back, Kofgan Bond listeners, and welcome back, I guess, to the podcast. And we're here in 2021. Tony, you excited to be here and starting back up again? Always excited, Jamie, as you know. So, love being here. Uh, love seeing all your happy faces around. Very optimistic. Everyone, everyone seems uh, very happy and got a bit of suntan and uh, relaxed and ready to go. So well, I got a lot of sun, I got a lot of sunburn, not much suntan. So <laughs> I've, I, it's killing me. I was one of those kids that would brown up as a child, um, and now that I've been wearing a suit and you, you make me put on a long sleeve every day, I'm, I'm struggling to see colour. Well, I've gone from uh, really white to just less white. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, yeah. But no, look, I, uh, we have a special guest here today and. Um, um, give me a minute to read through this resume because uh, the man has done a lot in his career. He's um, very, very experienced and very optimistic and unbelievable at his work. Yeah, and, and we've just had a great meeting and it, it's put a smile on my face, but I, I'm going to read it through and, and introduce our guest. So today that we have Robert Tagani um, with us, an executive level master qualified strategy and marketing professional like you, Tony, with 28 years experience, and we'll touch on that, um, <laughs> but diverse capabilities across a range of roles with enterprise-wide benefit. So strategy and planning, marketing and sales, commercialization, products and technology, IP operations, HR, people and culture. And I think that last point you can definitely see in him. So Robert offers a highly transferable skill set with unique insight into decision making and multi-domain experience. Construction, furniture, property, IT, creative agencies, entities and leisure um, with sector leading organisations like the Chevellos, um, Sony, Village Roadshow and Mattel, uh, a transform, transformational change agent and respected business leader. So Rob has a passion for improving business performance and creating sustainable competitive advantage through senior sales management, strategic marketing and planning, innovation, coaching and mentoring. Now, he has a proven ability to drive many successful projects through expert project management, positive leadership and leading edge thinking to achieve stakeholder wide value. Now, I know I've just read out a long resume, (laughs) but in saying that, um, Rob, you do do a lot of this. So welcome. Uh, It's good to have you here. (laughs) Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And I'm. My apology for taking up half the podcast with yeah, my so, No, but I think, so. I think, I think <laughs> when, when, when reading this out, um, you know, we've touched on it. We've just had a meeting for about two hours here and we've touched on all of this today. And, and that's why I think it was important to read out the whole thing because we will go through that in this podcast. No, definitely. And uh, Rob, I sincerely welcome you. Uh, mm-hmm. Having uh, been friends and known each other for some 40 odd years. So it's, um, it was, it's, and there'll probably be a few other St. Bernard's boys that will listen to this. So shout out to Carlo and Sam and all the other guys that I know uh, you regularly catch up with as well. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank so you, it's, um, it was, it was actually wonderful catching up with everyone at the 30 year reunion, which I was a bit reluctant to turn up to, I have to admit. Well, yeah. when you consider what we have, the 120 or so 130 in the year level yeah it was well over 80 that turned up 30 it was, years later well i spoke to some guys and you know people like sam gazardi is an example i went to primary school with um and you know I, but i spoke to some guys that night longer that night than what i think i spoke to them the entire six years we were at school mm, so it's uh changed. yeah that's right so <laughs> it's uh, they do they do we all grow up and have wonderful <laughs> stories and thus the 28 years you have 28 years of experience and 
uh, me on the 14th of February this year hitting 29. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, we, we both started as 14-year-olds, obviously, in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, well, so. Interestingly, I, I did start in the family business uh, right. way back earlier. Yeah. Uh, my parents owned a hairdressing salon and tobacconist and good store and a whole range of other things in the Melbourne airport when it first opened. And that was really... Uh, uh, the new bastion for retail because if you recall back then we're talking in this uh, we're talking about mid to late 70s mm. uh, retail was not what it was today there was no late night trading there was no trading after one o'clock on a saturday yet the federal territory of the airport meant that you traded 24 7. so uh, it was a very different uh, impost on my parents and their working culture and working life and i just grew through that and went there and spent every time every opportunity I could to learn customer service and understood what mum and dad did I had no aspirations of being a hairdresser um, <laughs> I could just see the hard work but you always had good hair Rob I yeah, always so had great hair yeah, yeah, yeah you always had the, the long curls and uh, a few blonde they, tips here and yeah there. <laughs> that's right so he was a trendsetter <laughs> so, absolutely yeah. so uh, but yeah I and, he always had, and he always had a packet of cigarettes on him too at school yeah unfortunately <laughs> yeah. although after you, 22 years I decided to drop that yeah which is um, good <laughs> yeah it's over 18 years now since i've smoked yeah. um but i do don't i don't mind a good cigar every now and then yeah um, but but i guess at that time what was really interesting to me is that you know mum and dad as as hairdressers and as retailers at the time you know they really became very uh customer centric you know yeah. their customers were their friends uh particularly hairdressers and even you know uh, anyone in the sort of uh uh, makeup industry these days, you know, a lot of the customers, their clients, they go there for uh, support, psychological support. They want to have a chat and a conversation, a cup of coffee, um, and those friendships and those bonds really grow. So it taught me in those very early days that building relationships with customers is not transactional. It's absolutely about getting to know them uh, in the true sense of the word. And, and the stronger you can build those relationships, the more empathy you can show, uh, the, the far more enriching those opportunities will be for both parties. Yeah, definitely. Now, Rob, you've, you've got a resume of having uh, dealt with many, many companies uh, from multi-billion dollar family-owned businesses, uh, companies that got bought out by other companies worth 50 or $60 billion, now overseas companies as well. And you've worked with all these companies and also smaller organisations too. So it's not just the multi-billion dollar organisations. You know, it's uh, every multi-billion dollar organisation started as a million dollar organisation. Mm once upon a time you've actually helped them through and there's three pillars that we are going to talk about today being purpose strategy and culture and realistically um, you know our audience is clients turning over a million dollars up to you know 500 million dollars in their family-owned businesses but realistically the, when it comes to understanding that business and where they want to grow or what they want to do in that business it is so vitally important that these three pillars that we'll touch on um, are always looked at no matter how big or small the business so why don't we start on purpose if i can ask you for the first pillar of your three pillars mm -hmm. uh, speak to us about purpose sure um, so purpose for me and i suppose like many people they would have uh, seen a few podcasts over the years, I remember when TED Talks first kicked off, the very first podcast, and this would have been around 2006, maybe 2007, and Simon Sinek had his Ask Why. Uh, now, you know, many, many millions and millions, maybe even in the billions of views. Mm. Um, and, and that really captivated me. It really, um, uh, I suppose, didn't tell me what I didn't know, but it really crystallised what I believed in. 
Um, purpose is really important, and especially when you consider what we've just been through and potentially what we're still going to go through, uh, through COVID. Um, there's been a real pause, a real reflection point. Um, most organisations who have the privilege of just continuing along with the momentum that the market and, and their customers give them, not really stopping and thinking about why they do what they do. Now, whilst it might be really clear to the business owner or the founder or the entrepreneur, if you like, um, if it's not even as clear or, or, or more clear to the people that help them execute that vision and that strategy, um, then it makes it really difficult to push through tough times. You know, why am I doing what I can do, what I'm doing when I could do it elsewhere or with someone else or in a different way? Um, so I think finding the purpose in a business is really critical. And, and you know, as Simon and many others have now uh, preceded him uh, or followed him, um, you know, purpose is important to drive you through those difficult times. And when times are really good and healthy, it helps you to generate a degree of gratitude and thanks so that you know that because of a direction and because of a passion, you've actually achieved. And that helps to fuel you through those sticking points and those milestones that every business faces. Um, strategy for me. I was, was going to say yeah. though, on, on that purpose, you have the business owner who say has that purpose in business. How is that uh, at times, and if you're going to touch on this through the next part of strategy and culture, uh, we can sort of move through. But as a business grows, you start off with a great idea you know, in the garage, in your parents' garage, and you end up building this million dollar business, multi-million dollar business, 100 employees, 500 employees, all of a sudden there's 1,700 employees. How do you develop that purpose all the way through in regards to everyone that works with you? So I think the purpose is articulated through the values that you express as a business owner. Um, there is uh, such a thing that I, I term the entrepreneurial chasm. And this is when you have a great idea and you start to think through that idea and you might put pen to paper and you may start to create the architecture around that business idea. But then you get to a point where you start to doubt yourself and you wonder and you sort of, to take that next leap to invest money, time, effort, leave your job, get that second mortgage, whatever it might be, whatever strategy it needs to be, and probably the second mortgage is not a good one, mm. but when it comes to taking that leap of faith, um, you need to be sticking very close to your values. You need to say, well, why am I doing this and what's important and what drives me and what's gonna support me moving forward? When you finally take that step and the business starts to gain some momentum or you start to rally some people around you, they're going to come uh, they're going to assemble around you based on the values you express, based on something they see and more importantly something they feel that just resonates. Um, you know often we, we feel something before we see it. You know, um, we know what it feels like to be left out in the cold, to be alienated. We also know what it feels like to be made to feel important, to be made to feel listened to. And I suppose as a business leader, understanding that your people have needs, they have concerns, they have fears, and they have hopes and dreams is a really important way to start to um, share your values and your purpose and you'll just naturally find people mm. that will gravitate towards you. If 
they don't, then they're not the right people for you and you're probably not the right business or leader for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if we then go into that strategy as an example, the next part, so we know what the purpose is. Um, for example, we have a line in here which we use and that is the right amount of money to the right person at the right time tax effectively. It's very open-ended obviously, but that's the basis, whether it be through retirement, whether it be having the money to buy that first house, whether it be unfortunately through passing or death, making sure the money goes to the intergenerational wealth transfer as well. So that's our, and having the right people on board, that that's our sole purpose for what we do, is making sure people always have the money when they need it hmm. uh, the most. So you go on then, say, to an excavation company or a furniture uh, company and things like that. Obviously, they have different purposes for what they do. So how do you then come in and say, okay, we're a financial services business and these guys own a furniture wholesaling business. So when it comes to strategy, there's, is there a wide range of different strategy or strategies still fall into, say, several different categories, no matter what the organisation is? And we'll let you work into the strategy, but yes, sure, go from there. Sure. Um, well, the first question Ooh. that I want to answer is the fact that um, probably the purposes of why we do what we do are not that different. Now, whether we're a furniture company or a construction business or a HR firm, um, you know, the, the, the core values of why you do it and the passion that drives you often is very similar. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs that I've grown up around, say uh, the Scivolo family, mm. who have built an amazing empire over the last 50 odd plus years, um, you know, the dream for Tony Scivolo was simply to put food on the table and provide a better quality of life for his family and his extended family. Mm. You know, he felt this sense of responsibility with his brothers and his extended family to make sure that they had a, a better, as better life or as good a life as they could afford and as the business grew and evolved that belief and that uh, passion for extending that or sharing the wealth which is one of the key criteria for the most successful entrepreneurs in the world that that was extended to even non-family who became family mm. so he had a, a core contingency of directors who he brought on board who believed in his vision trusted his stewardship and he wanted to share that with them and they became directors right through until they retired many of them were older than him um, some of them were around his age but they stayed with him well beyond their retirement years because they just probably felt they owed a debt but he felt he owed a debt to them because yeah. they helped him achieve that dream so i think when you cut down the core values you know we just want to be safe we want to be uh, empowered we want to be listened to we want to know that uh, there's an opportunistic future um, of caring for people being respectful being acknowledged, these are all fundamental values. If we generate that into a passion or a purpose, then we might channel that into a making a beautiful artisan piece of furniture or creating an amazing plate of food in a restaurant. I've owned a restaurant before and I know that feeling of putting a smile on a customer's face when you bring out an amazing dish and you know that everything has just gone right. The chef has got it right, the menu reads the way it eats and you see the smile on these people's faces and they walk away saying, wow, what an incredible experience. As a side note, you should see the steaks this guy puts on his barbecue. <laughs> they, are, they are things that make that, that 
brontosaurus you like New York looks <laughs> oh, small absolutely, <laughs> so, absolutely. Uh, yeah. but you know another experience was you know I had uh, my restaurant in uh, Mooney Ponds that I had back in the early 2000s mm. uh, we had Foxtel as a neighbour and the national managers used to fly in from Sydney and then bring their staff to our restaurant and I overheard them one day and one of the national managers said she was telling a few people look I wanted to bring you here because this guy Rob who owns the business he treats me like family now I don't know any other way to treat my clients but by by family because that's how my parents treated their clients and that's how you know European family we're all about passion and sharing the love Um, but it made me very proud that she felt so compelled uh, and so uh, enamorated with with what it was that we were doing uh, that she wanted to share that with other people. And I think you know, strategy fundamentally is about being very clear about what you need to do to get to the outcome that you're seeking to achieve, mm. um, and bringing people along board uh, on board with that. So. Um, Strategy for me is a process, whether you apply it to marketing, whether you apply it to financial services, whether you apply it to um, you know, diversification or um, business acquisition or even just um, your own personal well-being, health and mental. Strategy is just simply a process for helping you to achieve an outcome. Now, there's a really nice, uh, simple uh, three-word uh, mantra, if you like, that I like that helps me to focus on strategy and that's be, do, have. Now, uh, the B is about purpose, right? So that's my vision. You know, what do I want to be or what do I see myself or where do I see myself? Um, if you want to be that, you've got to do what it takes. So there's a process in the doing and there's a bit of pain in that or compromise where you've got to give up something to do something else, drop habits, adopt habits, whatever. So the B, the do. And if you do that, you will have what it is that you need to achieve or what you you covered so much. So B do have, really simple. Um, So strategy for me, when I walk into a client's environment, you know, for me, I want to be immersed. Uh, The most important part is that strategy is not just for the upper echelons of the business. If I can't articulate a strategy clearly in a way that the ground level staff and support staff, right, even say for example, in a, a factory or a plant or logistics, the guy who's packing a box or, or the person who is um, you know, sending an email just simply to order some goods from a supplier, if they don't get the strategy, if it doesn't resonate with them, if they don't believe in our values and purpose, then I'm never gonna be able to transform the business. I'm never gonna be able to, to own those customers' hearts and minds, which is we need what you need to do today in a very competitive and very congested market. So you can see that a strategy can change in any company. You know, your focus might turn somewhere else or, you know, you've come up with a new idea. But if you believe that those core values are the base, then they should never change? Or? Yeah, core values should always remain. You, you can evolve things, but what you believe fundamentally, it's underneath the, the waterline of an iceberg. Yeah. You know, the values sit way underneath and it's really hard to change values and they talk about leopard can't change its spots. You know, ultimately the le- leopard is an apex predator. You know, it's gonna need to hunt, kill and eat mm. and that's it and, and survive. Um, you can't make it wear a suit and go to the office. So, um, <laughs> and eat lettuce. And eat lettuce, exactly <laughs> right. That's, that's right. probably yeah. more the point. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think the um, you know the important aspect is be clear about your values and your vision and 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 express that in a way that people understand strategy for strategy's sake is a waste of time 
Uh, a lot of organisations have a strategy and it sits in the bottom drawer of a filing cabinet in the back office because when they need to get a loan, they pull it out, dust it out, brush up the numbers a little bit and they go to the bank manager and say, here, yeah, I need more money. Um, but that's not the purpose of strategy. Strategy is about articulating where we're going, how we're going to get there, and then what happens in between is quite organic because market shifts turns, we get pandemics, we have uh, situations where partners pass away, um, specialists in the business decide they want to do their own thing or move out. Um, and that's where the, the, uh, the management of the strategy comes into play. Um, I like to focus on core pillars that help the industry, the business in the industries and sectors that they operate in. So we know that if you're in technology, um, innovation is really important. And, or if you're in retail, um, having a business model that's relevant to your customers is really important. So what are those business models and what are those tools and, 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 uh, and say applications that are going to help you engage with your audience? That will change, but that's the tactical expression. What is the strategic pillar is that we must be at the cutting edge or at the beginning of um, a, a market trend that customers are using that we're going to be able to reach them and then we're going to be able to help them fulfill the unmet needs that they have. And if I can do that, then it's irrelevant what the technique or tool is. Yeah, okay, so if we move then on to culture. Mm. Now, there's a whole range of things when we speak about in culture within organisations. You've got the organic culture of the organisation, but of course you can say our organisation stands for such, but if the culture of the people underneath that it can, yeah, we don't necessarily see that in the people that we speak to mm. um, as well. They're not as caring as what the advert said you would be, you know, so as an example. So so when we talk about culture, obviously there's there's different pillars involved there from the business down to the individuals or the senior people, the entrepreneur who started that business down to all the staff and how they're treated. So, so if we can talk about culture from those different pillars as well sure. or subcategories within there. Sure. So again, uh, culture for me is something that is crafted, mm. and I don't mean uh, ingenuous crafting. This is about a clear and concerted effort that comes from our values and from the passion and energy that drives the business and where we're going. If you have the right people on board because they believe in what you, what you believe in and they're willing to invest in your business, because your employees invest in your business, make no mistake about it, uh, and then they translate that investment into value when they deliver that service to the client. Um, and that develops culture. Culture is an outcome of everything else you do. You get a culture whether you like it or not. Uh, it may be a good culture, maybe a lukewarm culture, it may be an amazing culture. And we've seen organisations that have built amazing cultures, sometimes under the the watchful eye of a very inspirational entrepreneur. And then what happens when that entrepreneur is no longer with us or moves on or changes paths, if he or she hasn't imparted those, you know, those core values, the culture can erode very quickly. I recall when I was working with Village Roadshow uh, back in the old days with Rock Kirby. So Rock Kirby was the founder of Village Roadshow. Ooh. Great old story, classic kitchen table type entrepreneur story. He was selling 16 mil uh, real films to the cinemas from the back of his panel van. Yep. Uh, going from cinema to cinema when they were all independent. Yep. 
and having great relationships with the projectionist and with the operators. And, and he built his business and he picked up a couple of licenses and then lo and behold, he became Village Roadshow. Um, but I came on board about six months before Rock Kirby retired and he met me at a Christmas party. Now, I must have done something right because uh, he actually knew my name or at least he let me think he knew my name. Yeah. And he walked up to me at old Bobby McGee's yeah, okay. at a Christmas party. Jeez, Bobby McGee's yeah. on a Friday night. Absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, well, this is a private function. Yeah, so probably okay. not as seedy, but yeah. I, I know where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I just wanted to meet the guy because I'd heard so many good things about him, and he was he was just uh, an icon mm. in the business. Anyone who worked there, the business was amazing to work for. The product was incredible, um, but he was just really inspirational. Anyway, I walked up to him and I shook hands and I said, uh, "Mr. Kirby, my name's Rob Tagani. I work in the." Uh, West Melbourne office and he said oh Rob I know you you're working in such and such division and he actually knew and I thought wow here's a guy who employs thousands of people and okay he's Melbourne based but he actually if he has, doesn't know me he knows of me mm. and he just welcomed me to the company and he said I think you're gonna have a wonderful time here and uh, and I was just mesmerized I tell you now uh, there is not a thing I wouldn't have done for that man and I hardly knew him yeah so you know the because uh, he listened and he took the time and he cared that's what I'm talking about when I talk about genuineness and and values um, and if we can do the same thing with our our people in all our organizations we build the right culture and we build the right reasons for why we're hiring people it also gives recruiters you know, the people in culture team a really clear compass as to the sort of people that we need and we want in this business and those that probably won't be suited and better elsewhere there's a space and a place for everybody uh, unfortunately just because you're employed doesn't mean that you deserve that space or that that's the right space for you yeah sometimes we find that that the hard way and sometimes you know it takes a long time before we work that out so um, culture for me is is a number of things. So when I walk into an organisation, I want to get a feel. The first thing I do is get a feel for the culture. And things like general behaviours, the way people communicate, um, the way the physical offices are set up. You know, traditional law firms or accounting firms with the partner offices and the big corner suites. You know, that says something about the culture. Mind you, education environments are very similar too, with the professors and all their PhD students locked away in a corner and this is my domain and piles of books and reports and everything sort of lined up, yeah. leave me alone. So, um, you know, there are symbols in organisations that indicate a direction of culture or type of culture and so I think it's important and when we work in the business we often don't pick up those cues and symbols so it's nice to have someone come in and say hey why have you got this like this and is there a reason why this works better that way and just kind of starts to unpack a little and and see what you can't see we can become shop blind if you're a retailer many years ago Tony as you know I worked in menswear and often... You should have seen how I looked when I went in to see him and he got come out. I uh, looked like a member of Duran Duran. Oh, well, that's, okay. what I thought, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought anyway. That <laughs> so was the year and that was okay for all the listeners at that time. He even had me roll up my short sleeve shirt yeah, and roll absolutely. up in. I thought, Rob, I've only got a couple of toothpicks down yeah. here, mate. What are you no, doing? No. I'm not built like you. No, <laughs> so. no, no. You did well. Don't you worry. Um, but, uh, you know... You and that's why I bought. You see the charm? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you tend to become shop blind. What you see every day, all day. 
you need to break the cycle. You need to see, first of all, you need to see elsewhere. You need to find out how everyone else is doing it. Go out and explore. Um, one of the principles is, uh, that I like to use is this idea of um, having curiosity. Now, curiosity is cr really critically important. Um, if you're not interested, then no one's going to be interested in you. So have curiosity around your people, um, what their interests are, what they do, your clients. Obviously, we do that. That's an easy thing. It's kind of we expect that as part of the business development relationship. But be curious about your industry. Be curious about the changes. Immerse yourself in the trends, even if they're fringe or not necessarily as linear as you would normally look at. And so, again, I try and encourage my clients to consider the external world. Who would have thought a pandemic would have affected every business? And when I say every business, I have friends and clients in the cleaning contracting industry and in the medical supply industry who I cannot tell you how well they have benefited. However, is that by design? Is that by being in the right place at the wrong time? Um, you know, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, so I guess... Be humble is the other one and be respectful that just because things work out your way, it doesn't mean that you've done everything right. So back to strategy, it doesn't need to be, you don't need to do everything right. And this is the other thing I've learned from a lot of these entrepreneurs. Um, certain entrepreneurs at the right time in the right environments in the right industries get something right. Mm. Village Roadshow were on this massive media binge. When I was there, they bought Warner Brothers Movie World with Warner Brothers. That was a new venture and they created. They bought SeaWorld, SeaWorld NARA. They bought the Osterio Network. That then merged with the Triple M Network. Uh, they bought Dreamworld or something, and, and then they bought a couple of islands, and things just rolled and escalated. People fell in love with the success, success story. We loved getting to our computers the next week and turning it on and finding that we've had another acquisition. It was exciting. It was energizing, and we all felt really empowered and motivated, and we felt a sense of trust in the organization. Um, so I, I think... It's important for leaders to show that stewardship, that direction, and keep people inspired and motivated. If you do nothing else in your business other than just inspire great people, then that is often enough to get you through those tough times. Yep. Rob, on that, and we'll talk about something that's a passion for both of us here, uh, question without notice, but entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, so. I, I I love history. Um, I am I absolutely love the history of. I regard the first greatest uh, and first real entrepreneurs uh, came out in the Industrial Revolution. We're talking the Carnegies, uh, J.P. Morgans of the world, who saw opportunities, jumped at them, and actually knew how to create. Uh, good or bad, there's lots of good and bad stories amongst mm. them all, but they created. They created what we have today, started back then. And what I mean by that was uh, they created mass employment uh, through production lines. They, they helped towns build. And out of that, we then had the next evolution of people that built things. And then, of course, we had the wars, but then we had the baby boomers that came after World War II that continued that wealth spiral where all of a sudden, you know, 18-year-olds were buying cars. It wasn't just one car in a household of five people, 18 and the hot rods and everything that was created from there. And, of course, the baby boomers being our parents uh, in a lot of cases. So when you actually have a look at that uh, lineage, but going to St Bernard's, 
a lot of very successful entrepreneurs have come out of St. Bernard's. And if you have a look at that, a lot of us have actually been children of immigrants. Mm. Uh, we're the first born here in Australia of immigrants from predominantly Western Europe uh, back then. But if you have a look at their they've all come over with uh, one shoe and an empty suitcase, you know, yeah. basically, uh, and sometimes by themselves, and then a year later brought their wives over uh, after they'd settled and got Completely. things going, things yeah. like that. There's just been this absolute culture in Australia, and if we have a look at uh, you know, our generation who have come from hardworking immigrants, they put that culture in us. Do you think from that respect, in respect to entrepreneurship, that we have... <coughs> Um, this hard work ethic where it's a case of you just go out and do it where we grew up in a household where what a lot of people would think is uncomfortable was just comfortable you know our parent my, my father sometimes won't get home from work till 10 o'clock but he's still up at 4 30 take me swimming training mm. you know because that's what had to happen uh, so that's what he did so do you, do you think that's just something because we were brought up in that that we've actually just formed that ourselves in some ways and now but we've had the benefit of being able to engage people like yourself who are experts in taking us from our parents were successful but taking us to that next level success now mm. and, and, and and like mm. Hofkin Bond same uh, deal in, ter- in terms mm. of taking your wealth to the next level um, look I, I think the exposure to the world wars for Europeans mm. uh, was no doubt a motivator you know, many of them didn't care where they went as long as they got out. And yeah. I know my father at 17 said when an, when an offer to uh, go international came through, it was either America, Canada or Australia yeah. on his selection criteria yeah. um, because they were the Western societies that were in growth mode. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and so he really didn't care where he went as long as he got out because yeah. there was just no... Uh, future as they we, saw we, it. I love going to Italy and Italy is an absolutely beautiful country but what a lot of people don't realise is back then it was poverty stricken. It was poverty stricken prior to World War Two. It was absolutely poverty stricken yeah. and the poverty everywhere. That's right. Certainly not the Italy that we go to today mm. which is just wonderful and mm. a magnificent destination yeah, to go and, to. And look they've got their challenges no doubt yeah. but they are uh, innovative they're one of the, the the greatest engineering yeah. countries in the world, yep. um, you know, exporting the whole lot. Um, so, uh, look, I think out of adversity comes opportunity, mm. and I think this innate drive and this sense of I've got to do better than my family. I think that's almost innate in human nature. Mm. Um, uh, interestingly, in the pre-Giuliani years in New York, uh, they had a very, very uh, serious problem with systemic unemployment yeah and you know systemic unemployment we're talking about three generations of family living in the same home and only one generation has ever had a job the rest were on welfare and he made them work for the doll he he did it so that the cost of working was actually more attractive than not working and I mean a lot of education and knowledge and really moving people out of this shift Um, so I guess Maybe my comment around it being innate uh, mm. that we want to do better than our family is probably not uh, necessarily true in every sense. But I think in general, we become accustomed to a lifestyle and a way of living. When you really are at the bare basics, you know, it's the old hierarchy of needs. You know, you just want food, shelter, war, you know, uh, water and, uh, and, and social security and safety. Mm. Um, then anything better than that is going to look good. Yeah. Um, but I guess 
you know, in those days, Australia was a young country. It was seen as a land of opportunity. And whilst there were some barriers, you know, much like now, um, who wants to do all the hard work in all the tough industries? Now, we don't really have uh, anywhere near a manufacturing industry like we used to. I was working in the automotive supply chain grant program when Toyota and Ford and Holden pulled out of Australia. And I was working with uh, second and third tier supply chain companies, you know, many of them who had just coasted along with fantastic contracts uh, in the millions of dollars and all of a sudden overnight, they had no business. Mm. Within 18 months, their supplies were running out, the orders were finished, and it was all going offshore. And they were sitting there with their hands in the air saying, what happened? Um, so I guess there is absolutely something to be said. And if we look at the new generation of migrants that you know, post the Western Europeans and the Vietnamese came out. Oh, yeah. um, Very hard workers. Absolutely, yeah. because yeah. they know what it's like to not have. So they make damn sure that their families are in a better position than they are. Yep. They go in their force, you know, force, but they encourage their kids to get degrees because they know that they want a better and a healthier and maybe... You will be educated and you will have confidence. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yep. And they've done that. Yep. You know, we've seen the next generation now with uh, African migrants and, uh, and, and the, again, the, the networks that they've built around themselves. And this is the other thing too. Mm. Entrepreneurs have been created out of opportunity and they've done it in a very controlled and contained environment. So I remember in, in my family's era, my parents' era, um, you know, there were clusters of Italian families, Greek families, Hungarian, Polish families who built businesses that leveraged off each other, they supported each other, and they got each other through the hard times mm. because there was kind of a familiarity in the culture yeah. um, and they wanted to give the business to other people who were in a similar situation. Some of those families became very, very wealthy mm. and many of them went on to be more mainstream businesses, um, if not just provide a good future for their families. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing this cycle repeated. I went to my local fish and chip shop who was owned by a terrific... Uh, Greek family that my daughter used to go into and talk to all the time and there was now an Indian owner and I kind of had a chat to the guy and I said oh so what's happened and they said oh no they sold the business we've bought it we've come over from India told about the family and everything and I thought wow the cycle's repeating itself um, so I guess um, innovation and entrepreneurship in, in corporates as well as entrepreneurship is driven by a desire and a need to see something and want to do something different or better. Yeah. Uh, often it's driven by those core values about, you know, okay, I'd love to do it, but I have the luxury now, me personally, to be able to turn around and say, okay, well, I've got a great idea. I'm going to be entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial and try and start something. I've got a little bit of nest egg behind me. But if I have nothing, then all I'm doing is looking for a better way. And because human beings are always constantly looking to progress themselves and make ourselves better. It's why the caveman took a rock and sharpened it and went hunting with it yeah. rather than just you know gathering plants. Yeah. Um, it's why we you know dropped a piece of meat in, in the uh, fire and went, that tastes great. I wonder what else I can cook. <laughs> um, so you know we have this built in us, this constant desire and this energy and this passion to want to innovate. So when people tell me um, human beings don't like change, I say that's garbage. Mm. Human beings have built a, an entire um, history of change. Change happens to us and it happens with us. We can choose to be part of the change and let it dominate us or we can choose to actually 
take that change and reinvent and reimagine. And that's the space that I like to play in. Maybe yeah. call it, you know, eternal optimistic or, um, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit uh, glass half full. But at the end of the day, I think what we're left with is uh, the opportunity to make something from something and it's not going to happen by itself. Yeah. And I think the, you've touched on a whole range of great things there. And, you know, I've always said that even when we do have 300 employees here, I still want to know everyone's name. Uh, I, I still want to. I still want to know what their interests are and things like that as well. So, and you know, Jamie, in respect to hiring now and what we do and the processes we go through. And one of our recent hires, uh, she turned around to Jamie. She said, "It's interesting because I've never gone through a hiring process before that took so long." Mm-hmm. And as Jamie explained to her, because we wanted to make sure we have someone who fits the right culture, she says, "I've noticed that." Yeah, we didn't want somebody who we had to say you're good at what you do but the culture you're dragging it down mm-hmm. or, or you just don't fit the culture that we actually have so I, I think agree. that's and it's admirable yep. um, and they will self-select based on that yeah. um, not because they're not good at their job but because they'll feel that it's not right for them mm. um, and you know, conversely if it is right for them they will be in boots and all and from day one then it's up to the organisation to then deliver on that promise and like, foster and foster yeah. that enthusiasm that they have absolutely yeah. and that's another interesting um, uh, conversation is uh, you know we've heard about Google having Google time and allowing their employees some time within the working environment within the working calendar to experiment with anything um, and the reason why they did that is because they realised that people's creativity, people, people's uh, desire to see problems or ability to see problems extend far beyond the work environment. Um, but the process of identifying a problem and deciding how they might resolve or solve that problem is in itself not only cathartic, it's actually a really good brain switching on activity. So if they can bring that level of heightened understanding and energy and process to everything else they're doing at their day job, then that's a win for everybody. Absolutely. And this is the give and take that I think in organisations we need to be thinking about. And we're doing that now, fortunately, in a digital era with customers. You know, they're actually able to vote and, and provide direct and immediate feedback, whether we choose to listen to it or not, about what they like and what they don't like and what they'd like to see. And if you took and I mean, in the old days, we used to do it as a focus group, but now your focus group can be thousands of people and you can have the analytics literally right there, you know, within the blink of an eye to tell you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong or what you might be able to do and add. And before you know it, the business can diversify, pivot, whatever you want to call it, um, and head in another pathway that has, you know, uh, lucrative opportunities yep. and allow your people to grow and, and move into those spaces. Yep. No, it's, um, I think we're, we're looking forward to working more closely with you this year. Likewise. Uh, as uh, 2021 is allowing things to open up again. So there's a group of wonderful, like-minded individuals that we have, uh, you know, all collaborating with each other. So I think it's going to be an exciting 2021 for everyone out there. 
Rob, uh, I want to sincerely thank you for coming in today. And, I, and I told you when I was reading that resume that we'd cover a lot. And I think we <laughs> Absolutely, we have. And uh, and it's, it's good that I give Jamie a break every so often as well. So it's Because uh, he is the interviewing star. You know, everyone turns around and says, isn't Jamie wonderful at interviewing? I said, I'm there sometimes. Uh, <laughs> no, he, he's got a, he's a natural, he should have been a racehorse. I, I, always leave, I always leave you and your schoolmates to go for it because the yeah, reminiscence there. That's yeah, fair. so it's, uh, <laughs> that, that's fair enough, but we can't tell a lot of stories though. Yeah, thankfully, we grew up in the age where there was no Facebook. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, no, and no phone cameras. Yeah. Correct, <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right so. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Jamie. It's been a real privilege, and I'm certainly looking forward to making 2021 uh, a very successful and, and rewarding year for all of us. Um, from a personal and, and uh, emotional level. Yeah. Um, thanks again. Let's let's make it happen and to everyone out there. Thanks, Rob.